Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation chapter 1. This morning we get to start a new sermon series for the summer. It's titled Knowing Jesus. We're going to spend nine weeks over the summer months talking about who Jesus is and why you and I need to know the truth about Jesus, what difference the truth about Jesus makes in our lives. Uh, I had the idea for this sermon series a couple of years ago, actually in 2021. I read a book by a man named Dane Ortland, and the book is titled Deeper. And I know that when you see the picture on the screen, you can't read the subtitle of the book. Uh, It's up at the top, very small print. The subtitle is Real Change for Real Sinners. And the book is about how is it that we go deep in our faith and how is it that we as Christians can actually, truly, genuinely change? He talks in this book about some, some wonderful ideas. I commend the book to you. It's available in our library. You can find it online. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful read about what it means to truly go deep in your faith. And essentially what Ortland says in the book is going deep in your faith means knowing the truth about Jesus. Th- this is how he starts the book in chapter 1. He says, this is a book about growing in Christ. The first thing to get clear then is what Jesus Christ himself is like. Our growth is not independent personal improvement. It is growth in Christ. Who then is he? The temptation for many of us at this point is to assume we pretty much know what Jesus is like. Now, I understand that I'm reading this quote and I'm talking about this new sermon series to a group of people who are at church, at the early service, in June. So the temptation for those of you in this room is to say, who is Jesus? I think I have a pretty good handle on that. I think I know who he is. And you might, and I hope that you do. But I would suggest that if you step back and look at evangelical churches as a whole, it is not safe to assume that we, evangelicals, non-Catholics, non-traditional mainline Protestants, but evangelicals, it is not safe to assume that we know who Jesus is. And when I look at evangelical churches in the United States of America, I see two main problems. The first problem is a problem of orthodoxy. And the second problem is a problem of domestication. So let me just mention both of these in turn. First of all, widespread unorthodoxy. I've read the State of Theology study put out by Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries. You can read it online. It's available for free. And I will tell you, if you read the study and the questions that are asked and the answers that are given, not by unchurched people, but by churched people, There is an alarming amount of heresy that exists in evangelical churches in the United States of America. Absolutely alarming. Some of the most basic, simple questions about who Jesus is, we, I'm not saying you individually, I'm saying we as evangelicals in the United States, we don't know how to answer those questions. We do not know who he is. So there's a problem of orthodoxy. Secondly, there's a problem of domestication. We have overly domesticated Jesus. Why do I say that? It's because I watch pastors and worship leaders around our city, our state, and our nation plan what will happen when God's people gather together to worship Jesus Christ. 
And people, pastors, worship leaders are far too casual when they think about what ought to happen when the people of God gather together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We have domesticated Jesus. We have turned him into someone or at times something, an idea that we are very comfortable with. We need to go back to this question of who is he? We need to be orthodox in our thinking about Jesus and we need to be awed in our hearts by Jesus. And that's what we're going to try to do over the summer months. We're just going to talk about who Jesus is. We're going to remind ourselves, this is who he is, and this is how I ought to respond to what the Bible says about who Jesus is. So we're going to spend nine weeks over the summer talking about these ideas. We're going to start this morning in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. And I just want to make a few comments about the book of Revelation before we read the first six verses and begin to think specifically about Jesus. Number one, the first word in the book of Revelation is a Greek word, the Greek word apocalypsis, apocalypsis. I understand in most English translations the first word is the, but in the Greek the first word is apocalypsis. And the word literally means an unveiling or a revealing. It's obviously where we get the English word apocalypse from, but when you hear the word apocalypse, you probably think, oh yeah, that's end of the earth stuff. Revelation, end of the earth stuff. Now there's some of that in Revelation, but there's an awful lot of right now today stuff in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of past stuff in the history, uh, in history in the book of Revelation. And more than talking about the end Revelation as an apocalypse is showing you what is real. It's not necessarily things that you can see with your eyes, but that's what Revelation is. It's an unveiling. It's a pulling back the curtain so that you can see what is real and what is true. That's what the book is. Secondly, John promised a blessing for anyone who would read here and keep the words of this book. The blessings in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Most commentators today take the book of Revelation and they want to map it out on a timeline. John would rather you pause your timeline in your map, and he would rather you read it and hear it and keep it. There's something to be kept here. There's something to be received and obeyed. What is it? Well, back up in verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word of does heavy lifting in the opening phrase of Revelation. It tells us that this revelation comes from Jesus and it's about Jesus. It's not so much about just the end and terrible things that are going to happen at the end of human history. This is a book from Jesus and about Jesus. And the curtain is being pulled back so that you can see the truth of that. And what John wants you to do is to read it and to hear it and to keep it. To believe the truth, the orthodox truth about who Jesus is, and to respond to him with awe 
in your heart and obedience in your life. Thirdly, John wrote to seven churches in Asia. I just want to remind you that these were real churches. John was on the island of Patmos. If you were delivering mail from Patmos to the mainland, you would just hit these churches right in order on the mail route. Seven real churches. Not the only churches in the Roman province of Asia, but seven real churches. Real people, real churches, real problems, real struggles. This book was given, it was written to them. So whatever it means today, it has to have had some meaning and application to the people who received it first. John didn't send this book to the United States of America in the year 2023. He sent it to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, real churches. And you've got to understand those churches and their issues before you hope to understand the contents of the book of Revelation. Now, when he writes to seven churches, you understand there were more than seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, seven churches, a full number of churches. John is indicating to us, the readers today, this isn't just for those churches, it is also for us, but it's for us in the sense that we're reading someone else's mail. So, that brings us to the big idea we're going to focus on this morning. It's very simple. Jesus is the ruler. Who is he? Who is Jesus? The first building block that we're going to put in place in this series is the idea that Jesus is the ruler. So look with me at Revelation chapter 1. We'll read verse 1 down to verse 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed these things to John and through John to us. Father, our prayer is that the same spirit who carried John along in this vision would open our eyes to see the truth about Jesus. We pray that the same spirit who carried John along in this vision would open our hearts not only to know the truth about Jesus, but to love the truth about Jesus, to be awed by the truth about Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Question number one. What does Revelation 1 teach us about Jesus, the ruler? Several things for you to note. Jesus rules over the kings of the earth. That's the first thing to note. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. Look at verse 5. 
Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. I don't know if you know this, but we as Americans are entering a presidential election cycle. And we're at that point in the year before an election where almost weekly somebody else is announcing, I'd like to run for president. You have Republicans doing this regularly. You have even Democrats doing this with some regularity. People saying, I would like to throw my hat in the ring to be president of the United States of America, to hold the highest office in the United States of America. Lots of hopefuls. Some of these people feel like they've been waiting their turn. Some of these people will spend the next few months obsessed with polls and uh, straw polls and telephone polls and numbers and where are they at? Are they moving up? Are they trending down? They'll spend election night for primaries and then for an election anxious about how the vote will come in. You understand that when the book of Revelation says that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, he experiences none of that. It's not that he's filing the paperwork to run for the office of ruler of the kings on earth. It's not that he's putting his name in the hat to be selected. It's not that he's asking you to consider him for this position. He will not spend election night Anxiously twiddling his thumbs, waiting to see which states break which way. Revelation 1 verse 5 says, Jesus is now, today, the ruler of the kings on earth. Here's one quote from Ortland, one last quote this morning. When today's world leaders gather together, they themselves are held in the hand of a risen Galilean carpenter. When you watch cable news, does that appear to be true? No, it doesn't. But the book of Revelation is pulling back the curtain and it's revealing something that is real and true even though you can't see it today. Jesus Christ is today, right now, forever, the ruler of the kings on earth. Secondly, Jesus sits on the throne of the universe. That's verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That word throne shows up all the way through the book of Revelation. It's one of the most important themes in the book of Revelation. Most of the references to the throne in Revelation, not all, but most refer to God's throne, God's throne in heaven. And repeatedly in the book of Revelation, we read about the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. They're almost always mentioned together. The one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. It's a Trinitarian idea in the book of Revelation. God the Father sits on the throne and the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, shares that throne. He sits on the very throne of heaven. They are distinct and they are unified and they share this throne. Now again, you can't see that today. Here's the sort of stuff you can see. 
You can see the White House. You can see it. It's a symbol of power in the United States. You can visit Russia and you can see the Kremlin, a symbol of power where power resides. You can go to the United Nations headquarters. You can go to the headquarters of the European Union. You can see these buildings and these structures and these thrones and these symbols of power and authority. Revelation is helping you see something else. Pulling back the curtain, revealing to you that there's a throne in heaven and that it is occupied. The Lord Jesus Christ rules over the kings of the earth and he sits on the throne of the universe. Number three, he's established a kingdom. He's established a kingdom. Verse five says he loves us and he's freed us from our sins by his blood. Here's the biblical truth. It's left to yourself. You are a slave to sin and you are a slave to the kingdom of darkness. And you can do nothing to move yourself out of that enslavement, out of that kingdom. God, in His grace and His mercy, has entered into time-space history in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem you, to ransom you, that you might be moved out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look in your Bible at Colossians chapter 1. I think we have it. I'll put it on the screen. It says that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption or a ransom. We have the forgiveness of our sins. There's a kingdom that's real. You can't see it like you can see human kingdoms, earthly kingdoms today. But the book of Revelation is revealing to you, showing to you that it is real. And that Christian people have been moved from one kingdom to a new kingdom. Jesus has an everlasting kingdom. Fourthly, Jesus has everlasting dominion. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You know how long forever and ever is? It's a long time. It's forever and ever. Here's the honest to goodness truth. There has never been a moment since this universe was created when Almighty God was not ruling and reigning over His creation. Not a moment, not a second. Not a, a rogue, out-of-place molecule. And now that the Lord Jesus Christ has lived and died and been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and taken His seat on the throne of the universe, there never will be a moment where the Lord Jesus Christ is not ruling and reigning over everything that he's created. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. I don't know if you've watched the news much lately. In addition to all the people throwing their names in the ring for <clears throat> presidential elections, there's been a lot of talk recently about artificial intelligence. Now, I don't pretend to know anything about artificial intelligence, but I've read the news stories and I've listened to these really smart computer nerd guys get on TV and they're, they're saying to us, 
This is an existential threat to humanity. This technology that we're about to unleash is unlike anything that we've ever seen before. We don't know what's going to happen. This could be the ruin of economies. This could be the ruin of nation states. This could be the ruin of all sorts of stuff. It's total doomsday predictions. Total doomsday. Let me just make this personal for you. I'm in several uh, online groups of pastors on social media, and several of the guys in those groups have enjoyed getting on AI websites and asking AI to write their sermons for them. They're not bad sermons. I've read some of them. I have not done that. I will not do that. I think my ego is too big to do that. I think I can do better than artificial intelligence. But they're pretty good sermons. You tell it what church you attend, what you believe, what your background is, and it comes up with some stuff that's reasonably good. So, I don't know, I might be out of a job one day. My voice doesn't come back, I might be out of a job sooner than AI takes over. I don't know. My wife has spent a lot of time going to school to be an accountant and to get her CPA license and to learn how to do taxes. And the the experts tell us that these AI systems, the algorithm is unstoppable. And at some point, it will figure out how to do all of these white-collar mental jobs better than we can do them. I don't know. We both might be out of work soon. The dominion of Jesus is everlasting. Human beings have power to unleash great harm on each other and on this world. There's no doubt about that. There's no question about that. But one of the very first stories in the Bible is a story about a a group of human beings who came together and they tried to use technology to make a name for themselves and to make God obsolete and God's dominion was not threatened. You can go back and read Genesis 11. In fact, for all of the grandeur and the greatness of their technology and their efforts, the Bible says that God had to come down to look and see their little tower. It's not that God couldn't see it from heaven. It's that the Bible is making fun of their tower. They thought it was so impressive. God said, well, let me come down and take a look at that wee thing. God's dominion was not threatened. The dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ Whatever may happen on this earth and wars and artificial intelligence and who knows what, natural disasters, the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ is an everlasting dominion. He will rule forever and ever. He's the ruler. And because he's the ruler, our lives ought to be notably different than people who don't believe that. Remember the book that I referenced earlier, Dane Ortland. The book is called Deeper, and the subtitle is Real Change for Real Sinners. When you know the real truth about the real Jesus, change ought to be real in your life. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. How should we respond to Jesus as the ruler? Five suggestions. Number one, we should recognize our dependence. We should recognize and admit the fact that we are dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not independent creatures. By nature, as creatures, we're dependent. I'll leave you to read the rest of Colossians 1. I'll just point out to you that in the verses that I've referenced here, Paul says two things about Jesus. He says, number one, Jesus created everything. 
And number two, Jesus upholds everything. He created everything, and he sustains everything. It's a remarkable thought. He created galaxies, and he upholds them. Big things he created, and he upholds them. And small things like you, he created, and he upholds. And he holds it together, and he sustains you. The reason you have breath in your lungs is that the Lord Jesus Christ made you and is sustaining you even now. It is good, it is right, it is fitting for creatures like me and you from time to time with great regularity to acknowledge you're the creator and I'm the creature. You're independent, I'm dependent. You've always been, but you made me and you continue to uphold me. And we recognize our dependence on the Lord Jesus. Number two, I think we should repent and believe. I'm pulling this from Revelation chapter 1. We won't read it, but if you continue in Revelation 1 beginning in verse 12, John sees Jesus. He has a vision of the glorified, resurrected, ascended Jesus. When Jesus was on earth, John was his best friend. They were tight. They spent almost every waking moment for three years together. But when John sees Jesus in this vision, he is completely overwhelmed by what he sees, and he falls on his face like a dead man. It's kind of like Isaiah, who saw the Lord exalted and lifted up in the temple, and he fell down on his face, and he said, woe is me, because I'm unclean, and I've seen the Lord of hosts. It's kind of like Peter in the boat with Jesus with the miraculous catch of fish where Peter's been lecturing Jesus and then Jesus brings in this miraculous catch of fish and Peter catches a glimpse of the glory of Jesus and he falls down at Jesus' knees, not his feet, his knees because the boat is filled with fish up to Jesus' knees. And he says, Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That's the reaction John has. That's repentance. That's recognizing in light of God's holiness, your sinfulness. And John falls down like a dead man. And then he's called to believe because the Lord Jesus reaches down and he says the most amazing gospel thing that he could possibly say. He says to John, don't be afraid, John. He doesn't say, John, don't be afraid because I'm not that big of a deal. It's just little old me. Know what he says? He doesn't say, John, don't be afraid. You're being too hard on yourself. Get up. You're, you're not that bad. You're a good guy, John. Isn't that what he says? He says, John, don't be afraid because I died and now I'm alive. John, you don't have to be afraid because I have paid the ransom, the redemption price for you to be moved out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. 
into Jesus' kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, dominion that will have no end. That's repentance and faith. It's acknowledging your sin and the problem of your sin and then looking to the one who died for you. Repent and believe. If you've never done that, you've never actually fallen before God physically, metaphorically, spiritually, in any way. You've never fallen before God and confessed your sin and recognized how hopeless your situation is apart from His grace. And you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived for you and who died for you and who was raised for you and who was ruling over you today. Today would be a great day to do that. To fall down, to confess your sin, and to believe that Jesus died to give you life. Thirdly, we should submit to his headship. I'll let you track down Ephesians 1.22. The passage describes Jesus as the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. A lot of things have surprised me about being a pastor, often surprised by the questions that people ask me. I think one of the questions children ask me the most is, are you the boss here? Usually this is like third grade and down. And they've been around church long enough. They've seen that we have staff. They've seen familiar faces and they've read the titles in the bulletin and they come to me and they say, look, who's the boss here? Are you the boss here? Who's in charge here? That's a pretty good question to ask in a church, isn't it? Who's the boss here? Who's in charge? Wouldn't you like to be able to go to any given church and get a raw, honest, unfiltered answer to that question? Who's in charge here? There'd be a lot of places that would say, oh, it's the senior pastor, he's in charge. It's the senior pastor. There's a lot of churches that would say, well, it's a group of committees, a board of directors, a group of deacons. There would be a lot of churches who would say, well, it's that person. Who's that person? What's the richest person in the church? They're in charge. I mean, they control the giving, the money. It's them. I've been around churches where you would say it's a certain patriarch or a certain matriarch. It's one person who, for whatever reason, has an inordinate amount of power in a church. Who's the boss? Who's in charge? We spent the first part of this year talking about what the church is. What is the church? And then we worked through the book of Titus, and we talked about what does it look like to have a church put into order. Let me just submit to you. When you understand what the church is, and you have a church that is put in order, you understand that I'm not the boss. And there's not a committee in this church that's in control, or a patriarch, or a matriarch, or a wealthy person, or an influential person, but the boss must be, always must be, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. He rules over everything, and as the head of the church, we recognize Him as the head, and we submit to His leadership. Fourthly, we should joyfully worship. We should joyfully worship. 
Earlier we read from Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Paul describes Jesus humbling himself and becoming a servant. God becoming man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Shed his blood that he might redeem us and pay the ransom price that we could be moved from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom. He was buried. He was raised. He ascended to heaven. He was exalted to the highest place. He was given the name above every name. And then at the very end of what we read in Philippians 2, we read these verses. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the facts. On the last day, every last created being will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He's the ruler. Some will acknowledge that joyfully. Some will acknowledge that gritting their teeth and clenching their fists and angry and defiant, but all will acknowledge it. If the last day is the first day that you bow to Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, it will be too late. There's no question that you'll bow. There's not any question that you will acknowledge he's the ruler. The question is, will you do it today, joyfully, in worship, or will you hold out till the very last day in defiance? Because on that last day, you will acknowledge it, your tongue will confess, your knee will bow, but it will be too late for you to be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The call for us is to worship joyfully today, every day, the last day, all days. Number five, we should make disciples. We talk about Matthew 28 an awful lot at Emmanuel. If you've uh, been to our new members class, we talk about the mission of our church is to make disciples. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. The one central command in Matthew chapter 28 is make Disciples, there will be going, there will be teaching, there will be baptizing, but the one central command is make disciples. The rationale for that command is found in verse 18. Sometimes we forget verse 18 at the beginning of the part about go and teach them and baptize them and make disciples, but at the beginning of verse 18, Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. We talked earlier about how long does forever and ever last? It lasts an awful long time. Do you know how much authority, all of the authority in heaven and on the earth is? It's an awful lot of authority. It's all the authority. He's the ruler. And the ruler says to his people, Make disciples. That has to be our mission. Make disciples. You understand that a disciple is a follower of Jesus. 
Not just any idea of Jesus that you want to hold to. Not just any idea of Jesus you might hear in a church on a Sunday morning in the Bible Belt. The truth about Jesus. Who is he? We want to be right in our thinking. We want to be awed in our hearts.